This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. It's my pleasure to introduce Heather Carey, a pediatric emergency physician who's practiced in multiple countries and is now at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto doing a PEDS trauma fellowship. Now, as part of our Best of the University of Toronto EM series, she's going to talk about pediatric trauma. Now, there's quite a bit of practice variation across the world when it comes to the use of abdominal pocus and when it comes to the use of C-spine immobilization. So we're going to do two quick hits with Dr. Carey. First, we're going to talk about abdominal pocus, and it really is quite amazing how different people practice across the world. We're going to look at the evidence and then hopefully come to some conclusions about how best to utilize or not utilize pocus in abdominal trauma. Take it away, Dr. Carey. Thanks a million, Anton. I found that working on either side of the Atlantic has given me a great opportunity to see how much of medicine is actually dogma that we don't even think to question. There are a ton of examples of this, but today I'm going to speak about two specific examples in the context of pediatric trauma care. First is the use of FAST, and the second is methods of spinal motion restriction. So when it comes to using FAST and trauma, in North America, this is pretty much a no-brainer. But in the UK, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand, the general view is that FAST has a very limited role in pediatric trauma. So let's dig into the differences in opinion and the evidence to support it. I'll start with the opinion expressed by the APLS course. And I'll give you a little background because i am be referring to APLS a good bit. It's Advanced Pediatric Life Support, a course supported by the Advanced Life Support Group in Manchester, and it's a two-day course roughly analogous to PALS. I prefer APLS a little bit more, but full disclosure, I've been an APLS instructor for several years, and I'm not quite a PALS instructor yet. APLS digs into trauma care more than PALS does, and we would use APLS rather than ATLS to guide pediatric trauma care. So, what does APLS have to say about FAST? It says, while lung ultrasound might be a useful adjunct, there is no role for abdominal FAST. It also estimates that abdominal ultrasound is only 50% sensitive for free fluid, a coin toss. What about Australia and New Zealand when it comes to FAST? The Starship Hospital in New Zealand says that there are few randomized clinical trials involving children. There's low sensitivity for detection of intra-abdominal injury for hemodynamically stable children following blunt abdominal trauma. And its use has not been shown to improve clinical care when compared to standard care. This was measured in terms of resources, length of ED stay, or missed abdominal injuries. The Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne simply states that EFAST has a limited role in pediatric trauma. ATLS tends to hedge its bets a little bit more. It says, yeah, there's a relatively low sensitivity and a high false negative rate, but it has the advantage that it can be repeated and avoids ionizing radiation. It goes on to say, however, that FAST identifies small amounts of free fluid, which is unlikely to be associated with significant injury. It states that if large amounts of intra-abdominal blood is present, then significant injuries are more likely, but operative management is only indicated with hemodynamic instability and poor response to treatment. It goes on to say that FAST cannot identify intraparenchymal injuries, which occur in up to one-third of solid injuries in children. ATLS does finish this all off by saying, however, that if a small amount of intra-abdominal fluid is found in the child who is hemodynamically normal, get a CT scan. So that is what all the various authorities tell us. The question arises then, what evidence are these authorities working off of? There have been two recent systematic reviews and meta-analysis. The first one was Liang et al. in 2021. They reviewed eight studies and found a pooled sensitivity of 35% and a pooled specificity of 96%. When we compare this to Netherton et al. in 2019, they found a sensitivity of 71% and a specificity of 95%. So what is a good way of thinking about all of this information? Well, one great resource is from Don't Forget the Bubbles. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Andrew Tagg. Now, what Andrew does really well is he breaks down your likelihood of actually detecting an intra-abdominal injury using FAST. So if we take 100 children who have an intra-abdominal injury, 37% of those will have no free fluid, so now we're only working out of a pool of 63. If you're a radiologist, your average sensitivity when using abdominal ultrasound is 92%, so you might detect 58 patients out of 100 with intra-abdominal injury. 
If you're an EM physician, however, the sensitivity is closer to 28%. So out of 100 children with intra-abdominal injury, you're only going to detect 17 of them using FAST. So what does all of this mean in terms of the question of whether FAST is going to change management? Well, from a physiological point of view, only two-thirds of children with intra-abdominal injury are going to have free fluid, which means that a negative FAST is not something I can trust. What if I have a positive FAST? Well, 90% of intra-abdominal injury is managed conservatively in pediatrics, so a positive FAST doesn't mean I need to get to the OR right away. That's a decision I'm making clinically based on hemodynamics and response to treatment. So, where does FAST make a difference? If anything, FAST is going to cause me to order more CT scans than I would have done otherwise. This is because the choice in pediatrics isn't OR now or not, it's CT or not. There are cases where I'm definitely going to get a CT. Abdominal wall trauma, seatbelt or handlebar sign, GCS less than 14 and blunt abdominal trauma, abdominal tenderness and or distension, persistent hypovolemia, PRNG blood, gross hematuria or suspected pelvic fracture. But if those criteria aren't met, I have no concern over mechanism, I have a normal exam, normal bloods and urine, I'm probably going to opt to observe this child. In this scenario, a positive fast might convince me to do a CT that I otherwise wouldn't do. So I would be tempted to do a CT with no benefit to the patient, resulting in only side effects, like radiation. And the lifetime cancer risk is somewhere between 1 in 500 and 1 in 1,000 per CT scan. For me, fast takes up time, space, and cognitive load, things that are all in short supply in the trauma room, with no added benefit. And there is the potential for harm. So what's the bottom line? Put your probe on the lungs and the heart, but don't bother with the abdomen. It seems pretty clear to me that the abdominal fast exam in peds is pretty useless. But what about adults, where we might not be quite as concerned about CT radiation? Well, in adults, the test characteristics of abdominal fast exam aren't really any better And a Cochrane review of four studies found that use of the FAST exam was not associated with any improvement in mortality and suggested that the evidence does not justify FAST-based clinical pathways in blunt trauma. Now, I remember a case at Janus General of a man who sustained six gunshot wounds to the trunk, and based on his shock index of more than one and a false positive FAST finding of free fluid in Morrison's pouch— I activated our massive hemorrhage protocol based on a rabbit score of two, only to find out on CT that he had zero intra-abdominal injuries and that his low blood pressure was probably just vasovagal. I mean, I'd get vasovagal too if I got shot at and saw six holes in my body. All right, next up we have Hans Rosenberg and Dr. Arlie McCurdy, who are going to tell us what we need to know about multiple myeloma. Now, I was surprised to find out that multiple myeloma is not that uncommon. In the U.S., the lifetime risk is 1 in 132, and 36,000 new cases are diagnosed every year in the U.S. alone. And there are a bunch of emergencies associated with multiple myeloma that we need to know about. So take it away, Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. McCurdy. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Arlie McCurdy, Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology, and we're here to talk about her Just the Facts article, how to diagnose and manage patients with multiple myeloma in the emergency department. So let's get started with some basics so that we're all on the same page. What is multiple myeloma and how do I need to think about it as an emergency physician? Multiple myeloma is a plasma cell malignancy, so hematologic cancer that is caused by plasma cells in the bone marrow that produce abnormal proteins in the blood. And those two things really are what cause the complications in myeloma. So they can cause problems with sticking into organs like the kidneys and causing hypercalcemia, causing bone fractures, uh, and increasing the risk of needing transfusions. All right, so that gives me a basic idea. Now, how would a multiple myeloma patient present to the emergency department? Patients with myeloma can present to the emergency department when they're being newly diagnosed, so as a presenting encounter or they could present during treatment with complications. When patients present as part of a diagnosis, they could present with a fracture, and that could be in any bone, but commonly that would be vertebral compression fractures, causing significant pain, and of course there's a risk of cord compression. They could also present with acute renal failure, hypercalcemia, significant anemia, or a severe infection. And I believe you have an acronym that you use for those of us to try to remember their main presentations to the emergency department. What's that acronym that you use? 
So classically, we refer to the CRAB criteria, which is the complications or end organ damage associated with myeloma. So the CRAB criteria are C for hypercalcemia, R for renal failure, A for anemia, and B for bone lesions. Perfect. So as an emergency physician, say I'm getting a first presentation to the emergency department, how would I make the diagnosis or at least get towards making the diagnosis? With respect to the diagnosis, one of those elements of end organ damage, so the CRAB criteria that we talked about is sufficient, combined with finding a clonal plasma cell disorder. And what that really means is evidence that there are abnormal clonal monoclonal proteins in the blood. So we would like to do basic blood work like a CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, calcium, and albumin. But it would also be very helpful to have immunoglobulins, so the IgA, IgG, and IgM levels, as well as a serum and urine protein electrophoresis with immunofixation, which will help identify those clonal proteins. And if your center is able, a serum free light chain assay is also an asset with diagnosing myeloma. And these are some tests that I can get started and then ideally likely refer to a hematologist. Is that correct? Exactly. It really helps us with triaging the referrals and expediting urgent cases. Excellent. Now, emergency physicians, we also like to know the big bad complications of diseases because that's a lot of what we do. So what are the most critical presentations of multiple myeloma that I must be aware of? I think the major critical emergent situations would be cord compression. So that's being aware that cord compression can happen at any level. And so acute neurologic changes, uh, usually in the lower extremities, would be very important. These patients can be managed with steroids and urgent radiotherapy, but sometimes surgical consultation is required. Acute renal failure is also critical, and sometimes these patients do require urgent dialysis. And hypercalcemia, which of course can cause significant symptoms and actually precipitate renal failure. I should also comment about some treatment complications and particularly infections. Because these patients have humoral immunity that doesn't work very well, they are very predisposed to getting serious infections, in particular pneumonias and streptococcal pneumonia in particular. The other thing I would mention is that the treatments have changed over the years, and some of them are now quite significantly immunosuppressive. So these patients, in addition to having typical infections like pneumonia or febrile neutropenia, can also have quite rare infections such as listeria, CMV. And so sometimes if a myeloma patient has an atypical presentation, just keep in mind those unusual infections that are becoming a bit more prevalent in our population. Thanks so much to CGEM for that quick hit on one of their Just the Facts articles. So some things to remember about multiple myeloma for us in the ED, think CRAB, hypercalcemia, renal failure, anemia, and bone lesions or pain, fractures, and the associated cord compression. Now for diagnosis, you can use this CRAB mnemonic to help you, but it's also helpful for our hematology colleagues to get the ball rolling on immunoglobulins and serum and urine protein electrophoresis, as well as serum free light chain assay if you can. These patients are immunocompromised from the disease and from the meds they're on. So aside from the usual infections and febrile neutropenia, we also need to think about opportunistic infections like CMV and listeria. All right, next up as part of our Wilderness Medicine Quick Hit series, we have Dr. David Jerome, who's going to give us some tips on managing the drowning patient. Dr. Jerome works as a physician with the Canadian Armed Forces, and he's an assistant professor at Northern Ontario School of Medicine University. He's the founding president of the Canadian Association of Wilderness Medicine, and he regularly presents across Canada on a number of wilderness medicine topics. Dave is currently completing an additional year of EM training as part of his CCFP EM program at Queen's University. Thank you very much for having me. At the beginning of a conversation about drowning, it's important to clarify the terminology that we're going to use. The definition of drowning is the process of experiencing any degree of respiratory impairment following a submersion or immersion in liquid. Importantly, there's nothing in this definition about a patient dying or this being a fatal process. This means that drownings can actually be both fatal and non-fatal. Understanding this definition, some of the terms that we've historically used to define drowning 
actually don't make any physiologic sense, and we shouldn't be using them moving forward. Some specific terms that we should not be using include near drowning, delayed drowning, wet drowning, or dry drowning. Terms that we can use to describe drowning are fatal drowning, non-fatal drowning, and we can also talk about a primary drowning or a secondary drowning. And the distinction here is a primary drowning is the only issue at play affecting the patient is the drowning episode itself, whereas a secondary drowning, there's another medical condition which led to incapacitation in or around water, and then the drowning happens secondary to that primary medical issue. It's worth taking a minute to consider the epidemiology of drownings, because the different groups who experience drownings will have different causes that led to it, and it will affect our care a little bit. There's a trimodal distribution to patients who have fatal drownings in Canada. The first group is young children aged 1 to 5 years old, and in this group, the drowning is almost always a primary drowning, and there's no other medical cause contributing. The second group is 15 to 25-year-old males, and these are drownings that are normally secondary to testosterone, which means these patients are often undertaking high-risk activities, they're putting themselves into situations that are outside of their control, They're often experiencing trauma in or around water, which leads to their incapacitation and a secondary drowning. And there's often intoxicants involved as well. The third group of individuals are an older demographic of aged 55 years and older. And there's more of a presentation of males than females in this group as well. Again, in this group, it's less likely that it's a primary drowning. And what we see more is a secondary drowning where the primary issue is a medical issue and the most common medical concern is an acute coronary event. In fact, looking at patients who have fatal drownings in Canada and individuals aged 65 years of age and older, more than half of the individuals who have a drowning, there's some type of cardiac component to the presentation that led to a drowning. So for seeing patients coming in in this demographic following a drowning, we want to be much more suspicious that there's an underlying primary medical issue. In terms of what happens during a drowning itself, the first thing that happens is that water enters the upper airway and then hits the larynx. And the larynx is going to go into a reflective, protective laryngospasm, which is actually quite effective at preventing most water from getting down into the lower airway. In patients who have a minor non-fatal drowning, their only symptom may actually be a temporary self-resolving laryngospasm. And then after a couple seconds, that breaks and they're able to clear their airway. And then that drowning episode is over. In more severe, higher grade drownings, some water will get past the larynx. And that water in the lower airway is going to cause bronchospasm. And then down in the alveoli, it's going to cause direct cellular injury to the thin, fragile alveoli walls. And it's going to cause surfactant washout, which is a really important component of the drowning process. We think of surfactant within medicine as the biological chemical that's produced inside lungs that helps reduce the surface tension inside the alveoli and helps keep the alveoli open so that there can be effective gas exchange. But surfactants are actually the name of an entire group of chemicals within organic chemistry that have the shared characteristics of having a hydrophilic head and long hydrophobic tails. We interact with and use surfactants every day in life because surfactants are the main chemical that goes into soaps and detergents. And so you can think of the biologic surfactant that we have in our lungs as being a type of soap because chemically speaking, they're the exact same. The reason all of this is important is because of how the water interacts with the surfactant if it gets down into the alveoli. So if you think about what would happen if you take some water, mix it with some chemical detergent, and then agitate it, you'd expect to get a large volume of thick-looking bubbles. And that's the exact same thing that happens inside the lung during a higher grade or more severe drowning. We call this, when it happens during a drowning, we call it foam. And this foam can be quite dramatic, and it can be very large in volume. It can actually fill the entire lung, and then it can come up through the larynx and into the upper airway, and it can be seen in the mouth during the resuscitation. So if you're not familiar with it and you don't know where it comes from, 
and can be very distracting and it can derail resuscitation attempts. So it's important to understand what it is and where it comes from, and we'll talk about how to manage it in the second half. In individuals who have an ongoing submersion, after about one minute of not breathing, they tend to lose consciousness. And then if the submersion continues, after about 10 minutes, they go into cardiac arrest. During that 9 to 10 minute period of time where they're unconscious but still submerged, the larynx is still protected by that laryngospasm, but the swallowing reflex is intact, which means that individuals who have a prolonged submersion over those few minutes, they will continue to swallow water into their stomachs and they can get 3 to 4 liters of water in their stomachs during the submersion. Knowing this means that we can predict that up to 90% of patients who have had a prolonged submersion are going to vomit during their subsequent resuscitation. Patients who do have uh, an ongoing hypoxia will have a predictable series of arrhythmias that happen. The first arrhythmia we see in patients during a drowning is a sinus tachycardia. But as the hypoxia progresses and starts to affect the cardiac tissues, this progresses into a bradycardia, and then eventually the patients have a PEA arrest. Importantly, neither ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia are hypoxic arrhythmias, which means that during a primary drowning, especially in those young patients who we don't expect there to likely be another medical issue at play, we do not expect to see shockable rhythms in patients who are in cardiac arrest. Moving on now to the management of patients who have had a drowning, the important thing to keep in mind throughout this is that drownings are primarily hypoxic events. So all of our treatment needs to be focused on reversing hypoxia. And the way we're going to do that is focusing on the same two things we always do, increasing FiO2 and providing PEEP or positive pressure ventilation. If patients are in cardiac arrest, we need to recognize that this is likely a hypoxic cardiac arrest. So we need to incorporate ventilation and oxygenation into our management. This is not the time for compression-only CPR. In fact, some guidelines recommend giving five full rescue breaths before starting compressions in CPR of patients who have drowned. As part of maintaining oxygenation, we want to maintain the airway. And as we mentioned earlier, we expect that patients who have had a prolonged submersion are likely to vomit. So we need to anticipate that and be ready to manage vomiting if it happens. But while we recognize that vomiting is common and we need to be ready to suction out the airway if it happens, we also need to recognize that foam needs to be treated differently. Again, foam, this surfactant washout, can be very dramatic looking because it produces thick looking white bubbles that can be very large in volume. And if you haven't seen it before and you're not sure what it is or where it comes from, the natural instinct is to try and suction it out of the airway. But in fact, this is the wrong thing to do because if we're seeing foam in the upper airway, it means that the lung is literally full of it and it's starting to overflow up into the mouth. And if we suction it out of the airway, it's going to be immediately replaced from more foam coming up out of the lungs. And we're going to end up in a cycle of just continuously suctioning this foam. And while we're suctioning, we're not going to be providing high FiO2 and we're not going to be providing PEEP. So it's actually going to distract us from the key thing that we need to do to manage these patients well. We also know now that foam is primarily made up of surfactant, which is actually made in the lungs. And so foam is not toxic to lung tissue. So the appropriate thing to do if we see foam is to ignore it and just start providing positive pressure ventilation and bag it back down into the lungs. One of the classic teachings around management of patients who have drowned is that we need to assume all patients may have a C-spine injury and apply universal C-spine precautions. But it turns out that this actually isn't true. The best evidence we have for this comes from a review in 2001 that looked at just over 2,200 drowning victims. And they found that across all these patients, only 11 of them, or just under 0.5%, actually had a C-spine injury. And all 11 of these cases, there was both a concerning mechanism and clinical signs of a neurologic injury. So they weren't subtle and they wouldn't have been missed. C-spine immobilization is not a benign intervention, especially in patients who were focusing on airway management and trying to reverse hypoxia. 
And so C-spine collars can actually impair our ability to do the thing we most want to do for these patients. So the current direction is that patients should not have universal C-spine precautions applied, and they should only be used in patients where either the mechanism or the clinical signs are suggestive that there could be a neurologic injury. One of the other classic teachings on the management of patients who have drowned is that we would need to consider whether they had drowned in salt water or fresh water. And the thinking behind this was that if they drowned in fresh water, that might cause hematologic or electrolyte abnormalities that we would have to consider as part of our resuscitation. The evidence for this teaching came from some small studies that were done in the 1950s down in Texas, where they simulated drowning with a canine model. But from what we now know about drownings and how they occur in humans, we know that the models they used were physiologically flawed and did not actually represent what happens in the human body during drowning. And we know from looking at actual drownings that there are not hematologic and electrolyte abnormalities, no matter what type of fluid the individual drowned in. So that's not something that we have to concern ourselves about or we don't need to change our management around. Things that we do want to do during our resuscitation is we want to get a chest x-ray and an ABG on all patients. And in patients who are having severe respiratory symptoms, we're going to anticipate that they're going to need some form of mechanical ventilation. These are patients who were seeing foam in the upper airway. We're seeing them have increased work of breathing or we're seeing some signs of hypotension. These patients are going to have increased work of breathing for about 48 hours because that's the amount of time that it takes for the body to regenerate surfactant. And they're not going to be able to maintain their respiratory effort for that long. So if you see patients with a significant respiratory symptoms, you should anticipate that they're going to need intubation and mechanical ventilation within the next few hours and start getting ready to set that up. Once we've focused on the hypoxia and we're starting to reverse that, we want to take some time to consider whether there is a primary medical issue which contributed to the drowning. So all patients at a minimum, especially those with a decreased level of consciousness, should get a glucose check as part of their initial set of vital signs. And then other investigations for potential medical contributing causes should be ordered based off of the patient's demographics, their past medical history, and the situation surrounding the presentation. A couple other quick myths in terms of the management of patients who have drowned. Historically, some patients have received diuretics as an attempt to try and pull some of the fluid off of the lungs and help with their respiratory symptoms. But this doesn't work, and it does promote hypotension. So there's no evidence it has the likelihood to cause harm, and diuretics should not be used. Corticosteroids have not been shown to have any benefit, and so their use is not indicated. And empiric antibiotics should also not be used. The thinking behind antibiotics is that, especially in outdoor natural bodies of water, we know that there's very high levels of microorganisms in this water. And so some patients were receiving antibiotics as a way to try and prevent pneumonia from developing. The evidence shows that empiric antibiotics do not decrease the rates of pneumonia, but they do increase the rates of resistant organisms contributing to the pneumonia. And so again, there's no evidence of benefit, and their use may cause harm by promoting resistance. The last thing to talk about is ECMO. In the last couple of years, some centers have started using ECMO to help manage the hypoxia in patients who are otherwise being mechanically ventilated but still have profound hypoxia. ILCOR put out a review last year in 2022 of all the studies available to date on this topic, and they found 14 studies to include in their review, but 13 out of the 14 were case studies. So these are very small numbers of patients we're talking about, and the quality of the evidence isn't great. Some of the factors they found that were associated with survival to discharge in patients who received ECMO for drowning were profound hypothermia, which they defined as a core temperature of 26 degrees centigrade or less, normal potassium, and for the patient was not in cardiac arrest at the time that ECMO was initiated. At this time, there are no guidelines from any organizations on drowning-specific indications for ECMO, and so its use can be considered on a case-by-case basis and in consultation with the ECMO providers at your local or regional center. So that ends our short, deep dive into the management of drowning. Just to quickly circle back and touch on the key points again. We started off talking about the terminology to use around patients who have drowned and the fact that you can have both fatal 
and non-fatal drownings. We talked about the fact that drowning typically happens in a trimodal distribution and what to look for and what to expect in terms of the cause of drowning in each of the three groups. We talked about the pathophysiology of drowning and got into the definition of surfactant washout and the production of foam. In terms of the management of drowning itself, we're remembering that drowning is primarily a hypoxic event, and so our management should focus on reversing hypoxia. And we're going to do that with high FiO2 and by providing PEEP. We're going to be ready to manage the airway, manage vomiting if it happens, but we're not going to get distracted by foam, and we're going to keep focusing on effective oxygenation and just bag foam back down into the lungs. Universal C-spine precautions are not indicated and will only apply a C-collar if the patient has a concerning mechanism or some clinical signs suggestive of a C-spine injury. And in patients who have profound, persistent hypoxia despite being mechanically ventilated, we can't consider the use of ECMO. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fills 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. Next up, we have Britt Long and Mike Gottlieb who are going to review AKA, alcohol-induced ketoacidosis. Now, there are four things we should keep in mind when it comes to treating AKA, and those four things are fluids, glucose, electrolytes, and thiamine. But I'll let Dr. Long and Dr. Gottlieb tell you more. Alcohol intoxication is a very common reason for people to come to the ED. Most of these patients are going to be discharged after they sober up. But there are a couple conditions that we need to think about with the intoxicated patient. Mike Gottlieb and I are going to talk about one of these complications, alcohol-induced ketoacidosis, or AKA. This is a perfect storm where you have large volume alcohol use combined with decreased nutritional stores. Then this gets exacerbated by an acute illness, injury, or just decreased oral intake. This leads to inadequate glucose breakdown and eventually ketoacidosis, hence the name alcohol-induced ketoacidosis. This brings us to our first big takeaway. We have to look for the underlying cause, just like in patients with DKA. The most common conditions include infection and pancreatitis. We also need to think about severe intra-abdominal pathology, alcohol withdrawal, ischemia, and then toxic ingestion. The second major takeaway is the classic presentation of alcohol-induced ketoacidosis isn't always classic. While we often think about this in our chronic alcohol users, it can also occur in binge drinkers with poor oral intake. The most common symptoms are nausea and vomiting occurring in about three-quarters of patients, while abdominal pain is present in roughly half to two-thirds of patients. The abdominal pain is usually due to ketosis, so it should be more generalized, though it can also be apogastric if they have an associated gastritis. Focal lower abdominal pain is abnormal and should always make you think about an alternate cause. Patients usually have a fairly normal mental status, Severe alterations in their mental status should make you think about another condition, like head trauma or toxic alcohol ingestion. The third major takeaway involves our assessment. Patients classically have ketoacidosis, an anion gap, metabolic acidosis, low glucose, and negative serum alcohol levels. But this isn't always the case. Ketoacidosis is always going to be present, but less than a quarter of patients have an anion gap, metabolic acidosis alone. Most of these patients are going to have a mixed acid-base disorder. Serum beta-hydroxybutyrate is the predominant ketone body producing AKA, and if you have it, a serum test is honestly your best bet. Urine ketone testing uses nitroprusside, which only detects acetoacetate, and this might be negative early in a patient with AKA. When it comes to glucose, 
most patients are going to have normal or mildly low levels. About 10% of patients have a glucose less than 3.3 millimoles per liter or 60 milligrams per deciliter. About 11% have hyperglycemia with levels above 13.9 millimoles per liter or 250 milligrams per deciliter. Alcohol levels may also not be low, especially if patients usually live at an elevated alcohol level. One study found over 80% of patients with AKA had an elevated serum alcohol level. Finally, we're probably going to find several electrolyte abnormalities. Low sodium, potassium, phosphate, and magnesium are all very common. As for management, the key is fluid, sugar, and electrolytes. There's actually quite a bit of overlap between this and DKA. You're going to replace fluids early, and I recommend using balanced fluids here to reduce the risk of developing hyperchloremic non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. If they're severely hypoglycemic, you're going to need to treat that right away. Otherwise, I would wait for the potassium level first and replace that if it's low. Once the potassium is normal, add dextrose, and that's typically D5 or D10. This is key because it replaces the missing glucose stores and can increase the insulin secretion to reverse that ketoacidosis. If they are hyperglycemic, you can start insulin instead with the goal of closing the anion gap and ketoacidosis. Also, remember to give thiamine in these patients since they are likely to have low thiamine stores and we don't want to cause them to develop a Wernicke's encephalopathy. Make sure to assess for and treat any underlying causes. Once they're improved, offer addiction services and if they're hungry, feed them. Let's go over some take-homes. Think about AKA in patients with a history of alcohol use, poor oral intake, dehydration, and GI symptoms, especially in the setting of ketoacidosis. While most patients are chronic alcohol users, some may just be binge drinkers with poor oral intake. Severe altered mental status and focal abdominal tenderness suggest another cause. Ketoacidosis is going to be present in these cases, but most patients actually have a mixed acid-based disorder. The majority of patients are going to have mild hypoglycemia or normal blood glucose levels, but there are going to be some patients with severe hypo or hyperglycemia. Serum alcohol levels are usually low, but they might be elevated in chronic drinkers. Finally, treatment focuses on looking for and managing the underlying etiology, fluid, glucose, and electrolyte repletion, and don't forget about thiamine. Excellent quick review. Thanks so much, Dr. Long and Dr. Gottlieb. Love that pearl on waiting for the potassium before replacing the glucose in those AKA patients with hypoglycemia. Our last quick hit in this podcast is a beautiful pairing with our new global EM blog. Check it out on emcases.com. I really enjoyed this conversation. This one I found truly inspiring. It's my pleasure to have on the show my EM colleague from North York General Hospital in Toronto, the co-lead of our new global EM blog called Simply Gem, Dr. Nav Saucy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Saucy. Thanks for having me, Anton. It's a pleasure to finally be on your podcast after working with you for almost a decade. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you here. So, you know, many of us are, are considering adjunctive work, I'm going to call it, to our usual EM gig. Some people, you know, might work at a, a walk-in clinic. Some people might do uh, surgical assists. Some people might work in a nursing home. Some people might do wilderness medicine. And global emergency medicine is one of those things that I think a lot of people have kind of thought about possibly doing as sort of a side gig mm -hmm. uh, to their main gig to help enhance their their emergency careers. Um, and getting involved in global emergency medicine really is sort of a wonderful way to give us a boost to love work more. The idea with the GEM blog is really to share some experiences working abroad and how global EM can improve your EM practice and introduce some ways that you can get involved in global EM. So that's that's kind of what I understand what the goal of GEM is, right? Yeah, I think my goal is to just expose people to interesting variant of practice that can be really impactful outside of just your local practice, right? So so something that you can do that impacts a community or a vulnerable population or a group in need that's outside of just your day-to-day -day work, something that has a sort of more outreach or impact. And so 
you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to have done a lot of these things in my career and have had a, a lot of like interesting and diverse experiences. And so, I mean, my hope is to give people a little bit of inspiration, some insight into how to make this part of your regular practice and maybe some useful steps to to get there or, or, or at least to share my experience on how I got there and inspire people to do the same. Yeah, amazing. You know how Mel Herbert says, uh, what you do matters? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that if you do a decent amount of global emergency medicine, that you really get that feeling that what you do really, really matters, even maybe perhaps more than your usual emergency gig. Yes, I think that's definitely true. I think the biggest insight I get is how impactful being a doctor is in general and the impact we have on not only on an individual person's lives, but the impact you can have on a community, a group of doctors, or like... For me, a, like a, a refugee camp or like, you know, an incredible group in need, the amazing power that we have as a doctor to like, you know, make people feel better and reduce suffering on a mass scale is, I mean, it's really incredible. So so just to have that, I mean, I think global health for me is a window into that, the insight into like the real power that I have as a doctor. And I think I, I think I like forget that frequently in my day-to-day practice, the, the real impact we have on people's lives. And when I go to these more extreme places, these places where people are in need. And, you know, I really feel that the impact that I have in the short time that I'm there, I feel like the gift that I have as a doctor and the power I have to make change and reduce suffering. All right. Well, if that hasn't already inspired our <laughs> listeners, <laughs> we could just stop there, but we're not going to stop there because we, I think people really are interested in some more details about what you've done in your experience and how they might be able to get involved. So mm-hmm. let's start off with how did you get interested in global emergency medicine in, in the first place? What, what inspired you to do it? Yeah, well, it was not a linear process. I mean, I didn't grow up traveling. I didn't take a lot of trips growing up. I hadn't been to developing countries. And to be honest, this was not something at the very beginning of my medical journey that I thought it would, I never thought it was something I would do. But gradually, it became more and more appealing to me. And it started with just travel. And when I was between first and second year medical school, I took a trip to Nepal in the summer and I had volunteered with a medical organization. And it, to be honest, it was just part curiosity. It didn't come from a uh, you know, particular inspiration or desire to do some no good or lead anywhere. But I was just so blown away by that experience, by the differences between you know, our world and the world of a, you know, an average person in a small hospital that I worked in, the disparities in care between what people in hospital received and what I was used to in the Western world and the medical school and, and the incredible insight and experience of the doctors there, how they worked, and the experiences of the patients, how they you know, managed to stay so positive, yet despite having such either extreme pathology or such a different experience than what I was used to. Yeah, it really opened my eyes and then just made me want to do more from there. And so when I graduated medical school after a few other trips, but non-medical trips. I then volunteered for a month in Tanzania for a smaller NGO, a Canadian-based NGO. And that was also, it was like a step forward in the experience. It was also really interesting to me. But I had what I had learned from the second experience was that I wasn't that interested in doing small NGO work. I thought that there were significant limitations in what you could provide from like a, you know, a two or three week experience traveling to a foreign context and and just popping in for two weeks and leaving. And so from there, at that point, now that I was a resident, I my interest grew significantly and I thought I'd want to at least try once to work for one of the larger NGOs, specifically Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, Doctors of the Borders. And so it wasn't really until residency that I, that I sort of thought it would be something I'd really want to do. And so after I graduated my residency, I initially did family medicine and took a year off. I spent a, <laughs> a few months traveling in, in Africa, doing some medical work and then just, just backpacking. And after that experience that I had both medically and personally, you know, I, I decided it was something I was really serious about. And so I got a diploma in tropical medicine and in 2014, I did my first mission with MSF in Yemen. <laughs> Things took off from there. Amazing. Yeah. And altogether, you've done, have you counted how many missions uh, you've done? Yeah. 
It depends on what we call missions, but I've done three large missions with like large medical NGOs. And I'd say two or three smaller missions with either with like a university-based organization or volunteer organization, et cetera. All right, great. And you've done that all under the age of 30? Nope. <laughs> no, oh, I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> I know you're a little bit older Definitely than that. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I didn't really even start. My first mission with MSF was, if you must know, at the age of 32. So it was all has all between been between 30 and 40 so far. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about what you covered in your first Emergency Medicine Cases Global Emergency Medicine blog, your first GEM blog, and that was your experience practicing emergency medicine in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Can you just give us a bit of background on what Bangladesh is like in general so that listeners can just get a sense of the environment that you had to work in? Sure. Well, Bangladesh is a country wedged between India to the east and uh, Burma to the west. And it's a quite a densely populated country. So size-wise, you can think of it as approximately the same size as New Brunswick. But population-wise, there's about 175 million people officially. So if you think of you know 175 million people crammed into New Brunswick, you can get a sense of the population density. It's actually a rapidly developing country, so the economy has grown massively. So in 1970, about 80% of the population lived below the poverty line, and now it's 20%, which is a significant change, but unfortunately that still means about 35 million people living in quite severe poverty. And it's home to the largest refugee camp in the world, which was in the neighborhood where I worked in an area called Cox's Bazaar. And that hosts the Rohingya uh, refugee population. And the estimates for the number of people in that camp vary, officially and unofficially. Officially, it's about 1.2 million people around there, but unofficially, some are maybe closer to 1.8 to 2 million people. Wow. So you're in the only hospital in the area that was servicing somewhere between 1 and 2 million people. What was the actual hospital like? Maybe to give you some context, Bangladesh has a a public-private medical system. So there are actually private hospitals that are situated throughout the country in most of the major urban centers. However, they are accessible to a small percentage of the population that can actually afford them. And the majority of the population, I don't know officially, but I'd say probably like 80 to 90 percent of the population actually uses the public hospitals, which are sparse and few and sort of interspersed in, in some of the, the major centers. And so, so that's where I was based. So the, the hospital I worked in was one of the public hospitals. It was roughly a 250-bed hospital with about 700 or 800 inpatients. So, you know, if you think we have it better with overcrowding, like you, you can't even imagine the situation there. I mean, there's, you know, Certainly people you know, who are not on beds or in hallways, maybe three people to a bed, a few nurses to hundreds of patients who you know, have pathology that we can't even imagine. The hospital that I was working in served a population of 5 to 10 million people, one hospital. And it was also the main referral center for the world's largest refugee camp. So you can imagine the type of pathology one would see in a hospital like that on a daily basis. One day there from pathology-wise, was like a year of emergency medicine in the West. And on one day, I'd see more sick people and do more interventions, it seemed, than I feel like I do in a year here in Toronto. Wow. So that paints a really vivid picture of the country, the area that you were in, and the hospital that we were working in. What exactly was your role in the hospital? You know, What was your role when you signed up for the mission? What was the goal and what was the role? Yeah, so I worked with the International Committee of the Red Cross a really large international NGO situated throughout the world, long history, has lots of funding, global governmental funding. So they had decided that as a pilot project, they've been trying to open this emergency medicine sub-branch of their medical projects. And so emergency medicine doesn't exist in a lot of the world. It's still a relatively new concept in North America, but in the developing world, it pretty much doesn't really exist And so as a pilot project, they thought that it would be something worth trying to bring this concept of emergency medical care to a context like Bangladesh. And they thought because of the crisis with the Rohingya, that Cox's Bazaar would be a good place to pilot this. 
Very easy task to complete, I'm sure. <laughs> totally, totally easy. No problem. It could be done in a few months for sure. The three months, you know, problem is fixed. So emergency medicine doesn't exist at all in Bangladesh. And so the idea was that if they could create an emergency medicine room, staff it and train a local group of people to practice emergency medicine with teaching from you know, Western quote-unquote experts, that perhaps they could prove to the country that you know emergency medicine could work in this context, that they would hope that it would grow from there. And so the idea was essentially that they would fund this one hospital, essentially build an emergency room where nothing existed, train the staff locally, prove that this model could work, and then hope that because uh, we could show it would work, that it would somehow expand. And so initially, there was no emergency room in this hospital. The analogy I used in the blog, and I didn't practice medicine in the 1960s, it didn't exist, but in North America, there was no emergency medicine here. And so what previously existed in, in Bangladesh essentially was a room where critically ill patients would come and essentially be triaged. They'd be triaged by an untrained, unskilled medical professional to whatever ward uh, that their problem would, you know, the, the problem they presented with dictated. So if they were a critically ill patient who happened to be pregnant, well, then great, they could go to the obstetrics ward without receiving any sort of further care or emergency stabilization or medicine or anything like that. If they were a critically ill child, well, great, you're a child, you can be triaged to the pediatrics floor, et cetera. If you're a trauma, you could be triaged to the surgical floor, et cetera. And there really was no concept of ACLS, ATLS, ABC, stabilize, treat the emergency presentation, and then ship or or take to definitive care. It was essentially, what do you got? Okay, you go and get triaged. And so you can imagine the standard of care that people initially received was really, really poor. And then what the idea that the ICRC did was initially they spent a lot of money, millions of dollars, and they, they built the facility within the hospital. So they, they took what was initially like a, a one room with a bed and no equipment and built an emergency room with 20 beds and a resuscitation bay and top line Western medical equipment. They built the facility first. And then from there, they decided to hire a group of doctors that would essentially be the first trainees. So they were specifically hired by the Red Cross to learn emergency medicine and be trained by these Western doctors. And then from there, their job were to be the trainees of the local doctors, essentially. And so my job was, all that being said, was to be the person who was the quote-unquote foreign expert. So it was both to help with the infrastructure, it was to help train the trainees, it was to help bring up the standard of emergency medical care, it was to help in the daily care of patients because it was quite overwhelming. You can imagine the need day to day in terms of the number of patients we saw and the complicated presentations that come with. It was all of those things. I was kind of tasked with, you have three months to make this place better in all the ways that you can. And that was basically my job. Huge task. So what were some of the things that uh, sort of on the ground that you actually did that seemed to work? I mean, I was lucky because I wasn't the first person there. And so the project had been ongoing for about two and a half years when I arrived. And so there had been a bit of a routine set in place that I was able to take over. And so uh, there was a weekly round. So there was one full day of teaching. There wasn't a formal education platform, but I, but I could sort of teach for eight hours about whatever I wanted. <laughs> Essentially, that was, and it was obvious that there was lots of needs. So you had one full day of teaching. And then I was there probably six days a week, one day of teaching plus five more clinical days where I was there a good chunk of the day. And then it was teaching on the ground with patients at the bedside. And so it was teaching doctors to how, to how to assess critically ill patients at the bedside, teaching them ultrasound, teaching them emergency medicine procedures like complicated suture techniques or reduction of fractures or how to resuscitate uh, you know, critically ill children or you know how to do better CPR. There was more things to teach than I had time. And so it was just a matter of trying to pick a few few topics that I could focus on specifically and, uh, and try to tailor my group to be better. So it sounds like you were really working really hard, six, eight, 10, 12-hour days, six days a week. Mm -hmm. um, you had a lot of different tasks to do. You were teaching. You were doing clinical medicine, crazy busy place. 
we already touched a little bit on why you enjoy doing global emergency medicine because of the impact that you make is huge. How, when you're actually there, how did you sort of see the silver lining in the midst of all these massive challenges that you were facing? Well, I think I had the fortune of knowing that, you know, my time there was limited. I had a a three-month mission. And so, you know, I came in there with the goal of teaching as much as I can (laughs) over those three months, or, or I can reframe that and say, my mantra was, how can I give as much as I can to this these doctors and this community in the, this three months? Or, or how much change can I make in the next three months? You know, How can I leave everything out there and give everything I can knowledge and skills-wise? And so I think going in there with that attitude really, really, really helped. I think when you look at the scale of the need in a context like that, I, mean, I know from experience that no matter what I do in a context like that, I'm going to leave and there's still going to be just an inordinate amount of need that still is going to be there after I leave. And so over the years, I've changed my attitude and my my thought process into like how I can sort of best serve while I'm there. And And now my attitude is more along the lines of if I can leave a place just like a little bit better than when I came, then I've probably done like a really, really good job and I've really made some sort of benefit and and I I don't know what that benefit's going to be long term. You know, maybe it's not what I taught, but it's maybe it's you know the encouraging words I gave to a doctor or like this one patient we took care of who may not have made it otherwise or something like that. And maybe that will lead to some downstream effects I can't be sure of. But knowing that like you know I'm really trying to make things just like a little bit better and move that ball a little bit more forward allows me to do the work and leave knowing that you know, I did the best I could with the time that I had and not get overwhelmed with the amount of need that's still there now that I'm no longer there and back in Toronto. I'm sure there's some listeners out there who have some interest in pursuing global emergency medicine, but have absolutely no experience. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend that other people might get interested in global emergency medicine or how they might get involved to see if it's something for them? There's lots of different things someone can do. My first like, general advice is if you know you're interested in in doing global emergency medicine, then do it. I think we put a lot of things off in life, and life takes us in different directions. We have you know commitments, and and we say, well, one day I'd like to, or or I would have liked to, but I can't because of. And so, I think if you're early in your career and you have these ambitions, you should develop them. In my career, I developed them just by going and taking some chances and and going on these at the time, somewhat crazy adventures and learning from them and then developing my career along the way. And so, I mean, if you're interested in the world, see the world and travel. If you're interested in practicing global emergency medicine, go do some projects and see how you feel about them. Get some training around global emergency medicine, do a you know tropical medicine diploma, talk to people who've done the work, go listen in on you know these recruitment sessions, get involved. And it doesn't have to be traveling around the world. I mean, get involved with like local populations, vulnerable groups and populations in your own city that are in need and see if that work calls to you. But I think the you know, if you're really interested, my, my biggest piece of advice is just to go and do it and don't put it off because it gets harder and harder as you get further and further in your career. All right. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Saucy, for your insights and telling us about your experience in Bangladesh and a little bit about what global emergency medicine is like and hopefully sparking some people's interest in global medicine in general. Next time, I hope we can talk more specifically about how people can get involved. My pleasure, Anton. Thanks for having me here. All right, well, hope you learned a few things about abdominal fast and pediatric trauma, the helpful crab mnemonic for multiple myeloma, that's hypercalcemia, renal failure, anemia, and bone lesions, a better understanding of drowning, how it's primarily a respiratory problem that needs management directed at oxygenation and ventilation, the sort of counterintuitive management of foam coming up from the airway, the importance of identifying alcohol-induced ketoacidosis and the four things to keep in mind with management, that's fluids, glucose, electrolytes, and thiamine, the pearl on waiting to replace glucose in those AKA patients with hypokalemia, and finally, a primer on our global EM blog with a sense of what global EM is like and how it could enhance your EM career. If you haven't already listened to the latest main episode EM Cases podcast, we had the mighty return of Amit Shah and Roy Baskind. 
who discuss a group of red flag headache diagnoses that don't readily show on plain CT, some of the more commonly misdiagnoses that are often incredibly challenging to pick up in the ED, like cerebral venous thrombosis, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and giant cell arteritis. Plus, we review what red flag headache diagnoses to consider in the peripartum patient. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.